Are you ready to move your career forward? Make your comeback with Purdue Global and get college credit for your work, school, life, or military experiences. With these credits, you may have already completed up to 75% of your undergraduate degree. You've worked hard to get where you are. It's time to get the recognition you deserve and earn a degree you'll be proud of, one that employers will trust and respect. When you take the next step in your life and career, make it count with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. You don't put those inside of you, do you? This is a show about women. I mean, you do? Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly-veiled aspirational nightmare. It's not hosted, not narrated. We're just dropping into a woman's world. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. Looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Jon Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Join late-night legend Jon Stewart and the best news team for today's biggest headlines, exclusive extended interviews, and more. Now this is a second term we can all get behind. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Good morning, and welcome to CounterPoints Tuesday. Actually, we're just here filling in for the Breaking Points crew and excited to be here. We will also be back on Friday. Soccer and Crystal will be back this week as well. Ryan, we've got a big show today. Lots to talk about. Yeah, you know, it feels like these news cycles just never slow down anymore. And it's always a sort of struggle to figure out how to pack everything into one show, especially with the news cycle moving as quickly as it is. Actually, Sagar sent us this morning just more information uh, that we uh, should Sager cover. Sagar can't stay away. Yeah. <laughs> Sagar can't stay away. Um, actually, out, sadly, of Eastern Europe. Um, and we will get to that in just a moment. But there's big news on the midterm front because a lot of new polling is coming in. And I want to... F- put up this tear sheet from the New York Times. This is A1. The headline in the New York Times here, we're exactly three weeks away from election day. Keep that in mind. Republicans gain edge as voters worry about economy. And that is from a new New York Times Siena poll. Now, the results, if you break them down, are interesting. It shows that 49% of likely voters said they plan to vote for a Republican to represent them in Congress on November 8th. Again, that is exactly three weeks from today, compared with 45% who planned to vote for a Democrat. That's a, that is an improvement for Republicans since September. Now, also, the most important issues, according to the poll facing facing Americans has leapt to 44% from 36% on economic concerns. And that's way higher than any other issue. Plus, Republicans were favored overwhelmingly, that's a quote from the New York Times, by more than a two-to-one margin on people, on the economy. So, Ryan, that really does show what happens when money starts to come into these races and when sort of rubber meets the road after the summer, uh, you get into the fall, things shift. Do you see this as sort of the natural progression of the election cycle? Or do you think there are things happening in the economy, for instance, gas prices have ticked back up, um, that, that that's really driving these gains for Republicans? Yes. And even though only about 50% of people, something like that, have Money in the stock market, right? And that includes you know, 401ks. I th- the 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 volatility in the stock market, 
filters into our kind of cultural perception of the stability of the economy. Mm-hmm. So, I, I, so I, and you've seen just these absolutely wild swings. People like predictability. If, you know, in fact, that's why as gas prices kind of stabilized, Republicans were very frustrated by, because they're like, wait a minute, you're, you guys, this is like a couple months ago, like, hey, voters, why aren't you freaking out about gas prices? They're like $1.50 higher than they used to be. And people are like, yeah, but they're not going up anymore. Mm-hmm. And yes, I don't like that I'm spending more on gas, but it's, it's the movement and it's the unpredictability that, set, that creates economic like, anxiety, like immediate anxiety. And so I think the volatility, the swinging back and forth, all, I think all of that is contributing toward the, the economy becoming you know, more, more central to vote, in voters' minds. The Kansas election was, what, August 2nd? Yes. And there were people who were saying uh, that the interest around it may, may have peaked just a little bit too early for Democrats. Uh, some of the criticism I th- of Democrats for making abortion rights a, a major issue, I think, is unfair because it is not exactly Democrats who kind of brought it into, like, <laughs> Democrats didn't overturn Roe v. Wade. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, in an election year, in a midterm election year. Now, to, for the consultants who say, don't talk about the economy because it's too difficult to message on the economy, I think those people absolutely do deserve criticism. You can, because I think the salience of abortion is so high that you can kind of gesture to it, mm-hmm. and then you can talk about your economic agenda. Because nobody's going to forget that they overturned Roe v. Wade. You don't, you don't need to remind them constantly that it happened. Yeah, I think the question of whether it's going to be a sort of deciding factor. And again, I, one thing a lot of people forget is that midterm elections are about turnout. They're about mm-hmm. energizing the base. And they are often, in a state like, for instance, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, going to be marginal. They're, these these mm-hmm. are going to be really close races. And whoever can motivate their base with the most intense, intensity, those little differences can make huge, a huge difference in the outcome of the election, clearly. So it does, to some extent, you, you have to balance balance not depressing turnout from, you know, independents or other voters with energizing the base and making sure the base is excited to actually get out and vote for you. And so this is A2. I want to put that up. It's a tweet from Tom Tom Bevan of Real Clear Politics. I think it's actually a really helpful perspective. So he's quote tweeting the New York Times issue and saying, the economy remained a far more potent issue than abortion. And Tom adds, this has been clear in the data for months. And I that is true, um, but there was a lot of conversation over the course of the summer about how Dobbs was going to tank Republicans in the midterms, and not only Democrats were buying into that. There were a lot of Republicans, even establishment Republicans, especially after what happened in Kansas, who were freaking out and saying, this could be a route for us. Instead of it being a route for Democrats, we could just get absolutely just hammered at the mm. polls this fall because all of these uh, suburban women, independent voters are going to, our, our candidates are all going to be turned into Todd Aiken, basically. If you remember the war on women, it was yeah. very, very much uh, channeling the frustration of establishment Republicans at the conservative movement um, and the conservative base. Although, to me, even the most optimistic Democrats, uh, Tom Bonier, who's the CEO of Target Smart, which is a Democratic data firm, who he wrote the kind of widely circulated op-ed in the New York Times about the surge in women's voter registration yeah. uh, after uh, sure. Kansas. Like, I interviewed him uh, for my podcast, and, and he, even he said, he's like, I'd say the House is in play. Mm-hmm. Like, it's, it's within reach. Which like, is a big difference. E- even he wouldn't say that, like, they're favored 
He seems right, so even right. even he at his at the height of his optimism was saying that he thought that Republicans were still favored to win the House. He, yesterday, he pointed out he's, he said, "Look, if you believe every single poll, every individual poll that comes out, then." Today, you have to believe that there's no gender gap because the New York Times-Siena poll finds zero gender gap between men and women when it comes to who they want to control Congress. And nobody believes that that's true. Well, uh, you know, um, w- women are going to side with Democrats. Mm-hmm. Like, that's, that's, gun- that's going to happen. And also, you will have to believe that Democrats are going to comfortably win the Oklahoma gubernatorial election. Because a <laughs> poll came out showing Democrats up by, like, eight mm-hmm. in that. And it's like, it's a nice poll for Democrats. <laughs> yeah. Don't don't spend all your money on predicted guessing that the Democrats are going to win Oklahoma. Uh, but so on, on the question, though, of how, how Democrats could message the economy, uh, Mike Lux, who's a Democratic operative with American Family Voices, uh, was out with a memo that was circulating around town this week. I want to read to you his, a couple of his suggestions and see if they would resonate with you <laughs> and good. your people. All right. So he says, number one, here's, he's like, this is how you message mm-hmm. on the economy. One, you say wealthy corporations with monopoly power jacking up prices. He's saying and, this. And sucking profits. Like, this, if you're a Democrat, yes. this is what Democrats should say. Agreed. All right. Number two, drug prices, health insurance premiums are going up. Oh, 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 sorry. Drug prices are going down because of the Inflation Reduction Act. Like, you're paying less because you've got these, uh, you got rebates and you got subsidies. So you're paying less for health insurance and drugs. I don't know if they really want to touch the Inflation Reduction Act because if you're, if you're trying to talk about inflation in general, you might not want to be messaging on a fairly unpopular president's signature legislation. That might be a problem. But I'm not a consultant. (laughs) Number number three, he says seniors will be getting the biggest increase in their Social Security payments in 40 years while Republicans are talking about ending Social Security. Yeah, that always does well. That always does well. Throw that one out there. Uh, We actually saw that used last night. There was a Utah debate between Evan McMullen, Mm -hmm. who's an independent that Democrats have gotten behind in his challenge for Mike Lee. We have seen some close polling in that race. I think Mike Lee will be okay. But Evan McMullen who was a former Republican, is attacking Mike Lee for going after Social Security and, and Medicaid. Mm-hmm. And it's just, I, I mean, it's like the perfect evolution. But that's how potent that particular bullet point is. Some fun endorsements in that race. Mike Lee endorsed himself in the third person. Did well, you see this? Well, so did McMullen's campaign. It was, it was kind of a weird... Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and then in the debate, uh, McMullen pointed out that Mike Lee had voted for him in 2016 for president. Right. That was kind of funny. That's All right, so number... Number four, he, he said, point out that manufacturing jobs are coming back to the United States. Infrastructure is being rebuilt. Uh, this will fix supply chain problems and create millions more good jobs. I like it. And number five, uh, I will fight for the child tax credit, which would give parents $600 a month to help with groceries, gas, and housing, and pay for it by taxing corporations and millionaires. How's that? Great. But nothing about Drag Queen Story Hour. Not Nothing. Nothing about Drag Queen Story Hour. You tax it. If you don't like it, tax it. You tax it, yeah. yeah. Uh, no, I, I mean, and this is getting At to least it's talking about it. The, yeah. right, the debate on the left has been really interesting to watch this week because there are pieces from, you know, David Sirota and Jacobin um, <clears throat> talking about how, how Democrats are really struggling to even, it seems like they don't have the will to be taking this economic message right. to voters. It's like they would rather talk. They would rather just sort of rely on calling Republicans the Handmaid's Tale villains. Um, and, and that's their sort of signature message. They have been running tons and tons of ads yeah. on abortion. And one question that I actually think is an interesting, I'm curious of what you would say, why you would say they have been running those 
ads, despite having plenty of access to this polling. I don't think polling is perfect. I think, as you just highlighted with the Oklahoma mm-hmm. governor's race, polling is a real problem for us, period, as an industry. It's a problem for the consultant industry. It's a problem for politics in general. That said, there is evidence abortion is not going to help Democrats over the finish line in some of these races, and yet they are running tons on it. And they aren't, you aren't hearing a lot of the bullets that you just, the messaging of a lot right. of those bullets. It's not rising to the surface. A little, some of it they misread, like the Pat Ryan race, for instance. Yes. Yeah. Upstate New York, where he ran half of his, uh, half of his paid media was on abortion rights. Half of it was on how he took on corporate power as a county, as a, as a county mm-hmm. executive, took on the, the unpopular utility there. Uh, the Democrats focused on one half and not the other half. What what Democratic consultants say all the time to candidates is that voters don't trust Democrats on the economy. Therefore, it is very difficult for us to message in 30 seconds on the economy mm-hmm. because what we say uh, lands flat. I think Republicans have a flip side problem on some other issues where they're like, look, we just, we're just not trusted on this particular issue, so we're not going to message on it. But to right <laughs> to cordon off the entire economy? Yeah. What kind of political party is that? Well, and again, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that if they're going to run on the an, a fairly unpopular president's signature accomplishments, they would rather talk about just about anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, although the corporate greed, is, is, it seems like just a very easy opening for Democrats, but uh, a lot of them probably don't want to go out and bash right. corporations, even if it's not entirely sincere. Yeah. There you go. Well, we have, uh, as, we, as we mentioned, we should move on here to uh, some stuff that Sagar had been passing along. We were going to cover it, and uh, he, he passed along. Ryan, what was the, the tweet that he sent this morning? It was really interesting. Um, well, go ahead. Yeah, so, and you can, you can pull that up. So both NATO and uh, the Russian Federation are preparing for, these, for their annual nuclear drills, which, you know, every—, every Every year they come around, they do these different, they do, they do these drills. Pre-planned, uh, pre-planned, before the invasion. You know, uh, do your drills, they go off without a hitch, the world survives. It's, it's, always, been, it's always been fine, and it's always fine until it's not fine. Uh, to, to have both of these uh, entities doing nuclear drills with the nuclear tensions ratcheted uh, up to what they are mm-hmm. uh, suggests, uh, you know, it has, has people on edge, um, has people praying that everybody is in communication, that, that each side is going to be able to tell uh, a, a, a drill from live action. Uh, and and it's, it's, it's coming amid increasingly hostile relations. Like war, war is obviously hostile, but the war, as we were talking about yesterday, has taken a turn where it's now battering civilian infrastructure in a way we haven't seen in in this war. And, and that's actually what Sager passed along. Yeah, where it's, Zelensky is claiming that up to 30% yeah. of uh, power utilities have been taken offline so, by, by Russian strikes, which is, a, which is a war crime. And it's not that, you know, both sides, both sides are obviously guilty of uh, war crimes in every war. This is, a, this is a war crime on a truly tremendous scale heading into a Ukrainian winter. Right. And so we have a report from uh, Wall Street Journal's uh, reporter in Ukraine, Matthew Lexmore, who is saying Kiev is telling Ukrainians to prepare for blackouts across the country after days on end of Russian strikes on energy infrastructure. Indeed, uh, Zelensky said 30 percent of Ukraine's power stations have been destroyed. And then the consequence of that is blackouts heading into winter. And then in mm-hmm. the shadow of all of this, 
you have 14, I think it's like 14 NATO countries doing the, the exercises. Um, this is a 60, aircraft, 60 aircraft, and that includes fighter jets, includes surveillance uh-huh. uh, planes. Like, this is a... <laughs> this is if it, it feels like a very dystopian moment in yeah. the world. And this, I, I was thinking about the story of so seeing that let's say a third of the, the power utilities have been have been taken offline for now. That I was thinking about it in the context of the story that uh, Ukrainians are basically also running out of glass. Mm-hmm. Did you see that story? No, I didn't see that. So and running out of windows basically. Mm. Uh, so. You know, when your when your city is getting shelled, even if you don't, even if your building does not take a direct hit, um, the chance the chance that your window is going to blow out is pretty significant. And it it wasn't something that I had really thought about before because here you you get a you get a window broken, right? You head down to Ace, yeah. you get a new window. If if it's too too big of a window project, you call call the window people, mm-hmm. and uh, it sucks, but. No, you get a new window put in. Or you do what my friends did in college and use saran wrap. Well, that that's what they're doing in, in Ukraine. This is really like, the only thing to do. Right. So it's saran wrap, uh, cardboard, uh, plywood, uh, which it would be one thing in some winter conditions to to, to have a blackout combined with you know, just saran wrap and, mm. and cardboard mm. uh, through a Ukrainian winter is, is going to put uh, you know tens of millions of people in who are just... Civilians not involved in this, you know, n- didn't sign up for this war, in just excruciating conditions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in the preparation for blackouts. Yeah, again, as, as Ryan was just saying, we're going into mid-October into November. Thirty yeah. percent—that's a pretty incredible number. Um, so, just—is—is is there anything you think um, that people should be watching with these exercises? Is there anything to pay attention to, particularly with them? No, I think you'll, 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 get a five, you'll get a five-minute warning that yeah. you're about to die, yeah. you know, if it happens. <laughs> yeah. So, so I, don't, I don't think you... Just think about how you're going to spend that last five minutes, <laughs> I guess, uh, you know, from the time you get the alert. I was wondering, who, who's the person that sends the alert? Because they're probably dying, too, because like, yeah. they're probably a New Yorker, do you see? Right. Do they actually send the alert? Are they like, you know what? Not, somebody else can do this. I quit. <laughs> yeah. like, I'm going out of the street and getting out of the sky, or I'm going to the basement, or... Did I bring my iodine pills? Yeah, I'm going to turn uh, some fish on. And- there you go. Just just go out like this with the last five minutes. Uh, so, no, I, I mean, I, I, I expect that the, these two sides are going are gonna to coordinate this. Yeah. Um, and, ho- you know, hopefully what we're seeing from Russia at this point is kind of a last gasp to get the best leverage that they can uh, from the ne- negotiations that they're, that they're forced into. Uh, to get out of this war that has been disastrous for them and disastrous for Ukraine and, and a disaster for the world. Because it really, it like, the, the, the idea that we're talking about, you know, nuclear Armageddon o- over this, when it can, when it can be resolved, mm-hmm. when, it can, when, it can, when this can just be finished. Well, that's the, absurd. Right. That's exactly it. And we continue to see you have the clip of the Finnish prime minister last week, for example. We continue <clears throat> to see resistance to negotiation. And yes, you don't want to give in to nuclear blackmail. I think we're all on board with the idea of not giving in to nuclear blackmail at the same time. You do not want to get into a nuclear tit-for-tat for Russia. And so the ongoing Western resistance to even entertaining the idea of seriously, meaningfully coming to the table and, and trying to end this. Unbelievable. Somebody responded uh, to my post the other day. They said, so 
you know, if we came into your apartment and we occupied, you know, two, two of your bedrooms uh, and then uh, and then you would just negotiate with us at that point. <laughs> like, uh, do you have nuclear weapons? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, you know, at that point, I probably am like ready for some talks. <laughs> right. You just you just crashed your way into my apartment. Yeah. Let, OK, let's. Let's figure out a way out of this. Yes, it's the the post Cold War hubris is like stems from this idea that we really thought we we won the like forever the idea of nuclear tit for tat like this is how it's going to go. And meanwhile, Russia was completely building up its yeah. stockpile, and that's where we are right now. But it's it's just so hubristic, I think, to expect that you can bluster your way out of that when people on a daily basis are. are put in harm's way or targeted yeah. by black. And it's Putin's fault. There's no question about it. That's why you go to the negotiating table and, and you know, try to f- find an end to the suffering. And I, I do think it's fair for people to say, like, look, okay, you should not be able to kind of wage a conventional war, invade another country, and then use, you know, nuclear saber rattling to get to hold on to that uh, territory. You should not be able to do that. No. And Putin is not doing it cost-free. Like, there has been an exactly. enormous amount of cost that he's paid. And I think that's what and there people can be more. need to remember. And there will be more. Like, the you know, Russian power will be a shell of what it was before he launched this. Even if, even if he left the war with every single inch that, he cur- that his troops currently hold, they would still be so dramatically weakened mm-hmm. that it would be a cautionary tale to other countries who are thinking about doing something like this. And he's not going to hold on to every inch that he has. He's, you know, he's, losing, he's losing ground by the day even as you know, he resorts to just bombing you know, power centers. Right. Well, let's move on to developments uh, in two investigations of Trump era, two ongoing Trump era, actually, trials. Uh, that would be the, f- the first one I want to talk about is, is Steve Bannon, the trial of Steve Bannon. Um, the DOJ recommended six months in prison for Steve Bannon in a $200,000 fine over contempt. Um, he did not respond to subpoenas from the January 6th Select Committee. And we're going to get to what happened in the Danchenko case yesterday as well. But Ryan, first, let's start with Bannon. What do you make of the six months in prison for contempt? There are other people in the course of history, other administration officials in the course of history, that have similarly demonstrated such contempt. Um, and and not faced what the DOJ is recommending here, what do you make of it? Well, I think if if you think of the kind of system as an immune system, Mm -hmm. like I think it sees sees somebody like Bannon as a virus that needs to be expelled. Like it sees Bannon as as something that is out of the, the normal type of operative or politician that the system is used to dealing with. What do you mean by the system, the legal system? The, the entire political system. Okay. Like he, he's, he's such a table flipping, uh, radical, different type of operative that, and I think, uh, uh, so, and so I think that that's why I think he's getting treated differently. That because he is a, t- the, the system sees him as a different type of figure. Hmm. And so they're not going to give him the same uh, treatment that you would give to a Mark Meadows. Well, a lot of people who was much more involved with January sixth. On the right, the name that was circulating yeah. yesterday was Eric Holder. Yeah, Eric Holder was held in contempt by. But the recommendation of six months in prison. We don't right. actually know what the sentencing will be, but I don't remember Eric Holder being recommended for six months in prison. Well, they never. Uh, 
they, I mean, he was never convicted of anything in a court of law. Right. But like, he, he just got a vote. But why would the system, this is what I'm saying, like the, in the entire political system, there was not the same thirst to, right. to take Eric Holder to literally to court and hold him in contempt of Congress. And, uh, well, yeah, I mean, ba- right. Bannon is, I think Bannon is different than almost everybody, mm-hmm. uh, but he's wildly different than somebody like Eric Holder. He was so much Who goes powerful. from like a law firm to an attorney general back, back <laughs> yeah. to a law firm. Like that, the system's like, all right, we get that. This is what we're yeah. built to deal yeah, with. Re- right? I mean, yeah, Republicans are mad at him over Fast and Furious, and so they can hold a floor vote that holds him in contempt for not doing whatever they wanted to do. But if they if they really felt like he belonged in prison, they had to they have to go to court. Mm-hmm. Um, and get a judge to agree with them, mm-hmm. but I think it, it's it's Bannon's persona um, that is that that is like creating this this uh, this kind of distinct kind of punitive approach toward him. Why do you think that mm-hmm. he didn't just plead the fifth and do what so many others did? Just show up, right? Hey, I plead the fifth, right? Like you you can make me come here, but you can't make me talk. Like wh- what what about the show the def- the defiance did he need to kind of broadcast to his people? Yeah, I think you're you're hitting on what it is. It's it's making a point, and I think there's some. I think Steve Bannon is clever enough to know that there's value in martyrdom from his like media perspective, um, and that's probably the argument he would make. It's that you know we're we're making this point that people are really being sort of sucked into the system and mm-hmm. the system is treating different people differently. And a lot of the conversation on the right now is about some legitimately, like what, whatever you think of January 6th, we talk about it all the time. Um, there are some, some highly questionable treatments of people who were involved in January 6th. There are some highly questionable treatments of people who have been arrested by the FBI for uh, squabbles uh, in front of abortion clinics. And this is all coming together in a way that the right sees as targeting. And so in that broader context, I think you can see that Steve Bannon probably understands there's value in in pushing on this button or pulling at this thread um, and and being the person in the center of that. So I don't know the argument that he would make. That would be my assumption, somebody kind of on the right, right, figuring out where where he's coming from there. And it's only six months. (laughs) Yeah. You know, minimum security. Yeah. And if you come out of it as like the leading martyr. Mm Mm-hmm. I guess there's some. That's be- better than I guess bending the knee and pleading the fifth. Yeah. And looking, looking like a cuck, which is <laughs> oh the worst God. thing. In the, it's like the wor- isn't that the worst thing on the right? <laughs> right. I mean, maybe on the like, in the alt right. <laughs> I love learning all these. I can't believe you just said cuck. I, mean, I, I, I love I love learning all these terms from uh, the, the the like engagement with the right on this show. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Do people teach you the word cuck on the internet? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Uh, what part of the internet are you on? Uh, Twitter. Yeah. With, with right wingers. Yeah. Sounds like maybe you've been on yeah. Kanye West's parlor. Uh, par- parlor had a, had a little VIP screw up yesterday, which was very funny. Uh, uh, anyway. Anything else on Bannon? <laughs> no, not on Bannon, but moving to Igor Denchenko, um, his case, we have deliberations ongoing today. He's on, He's the, the jury is deliberating about false statements Charges. So charges brought on this question of false statements uh, that were brought by special counsel John Durham, who was appointed uh, by 
was it Bill Barr? It was, I think it was Bill Barr under Donald Trump to look into how the FBI mishandled, actually, the crossfire hurricane Russia collusion investigation. Now, one thing I want to actually focus on here is uh, Margot Cleveland in The Federalist has a piece up right now where she says this conclusion or, or a, an important conclusion to pay attention to is that the criminal case against Danchenko confirmed that crossfire hurricane was never properly predicated and that instead politics prompted the targeting of Donald Trump's presidential campaign. This is why we combined the story with the Bannon story, because there's some similarities. Um, and Margot says that conclusion follows from two facts. First, after Danchenko allegedly told a colleague he knew people who would buy classified information, the FBI did not launch a full investigation into the Russian until obtaining corroborating evidence. And then second, the FBI refused to open an investigation into the Clinton-connected Charles Dolan, as some members of special counsel Robert Mueller's team believed appropriate. So this, you have all of the convoluted nature of the Russia collusion hoax baked into the Danchenko story. It's extremely layered. And I think that's why a lot of these stories actually don't get much play in legacy mm -hmm. media. I mean, I think, of course, there's a huge amount of bias and activism at play as well. I at the same time, they're really difficult to talk about because there are so many different layers, so many different people and, and all of that stuff going on. Um, but a hugely important thing, I think, to pay attention to in the Danchenko case, what did you make of the development yesterday with charges thrown out and what the media described as a blow to Durham? Two, I think two of the charges mm -hmm. were dismissed. Right. And, and I've, I've tried to follow this stuff uh, pretty closely. Like, like you said, most like progressives and liberals uh, and also most mainstream media, which people would call, you know, a lot of people on the right would just call liberal, <laughs> have, have, have barely covered this at all. Mm -hmm. But, but e even, even I'm getting lost on this one. Like it does, like it does seem like on a surface level, uh, another blow to Durham that he, and, and, and is it, he, is, are we going, what, what has, what has been the response from the right? Because the last time uh, he, he face planted on one of these, it was like, wow, it's a, it's a jury. You can't, you know, you got a, a bunch of woke libs on your jury and they're going to side with, DC jury. against DC jury. Yeah. Well, he, I mean, he knows what Virginia jury. He, he knows what city he's he's bringing these cases in. Uh, is 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 that been the response or what? Like, at some point, Durham has to uh, have something to show for all of this. Right. And actually, I'll read another line from Margot's piece to that point. She says, no matter the eventual verdict, however, like Durham's prosecution of former Clinton campaign lawyer Michael Sussman, mm -hmm. which Ryan was just alluding to, the criminal case against Danchenko revealed extensive evidence of malfeasance by the Crossfire Hurricane team. And so, yeah, I think, and that was always, I assume, part of the impetus for the Durham probe to begin with, which is that it, through discovery, through the criminal courts, for, through the sort of legal process, what's going to emerge might not always be criminal to the point where you have a D.C. or Virginia jury ready to actually say that. But what you are going to do is, is find exactly, you sort of put the pieces together um, of what the FBI did to the Trump campaign in the lead up to the 2016 election. And with all of that additional information, we get a clearer, fuller picture of the corruption that was at hand. And I, I think that's absolutely the case. I mean, I think it, per Margot's point, um, you know, there was that as revealed last week, she writes, the FBI refused to open that investigation into Charles Dolan. Uh, so that's something that came out in, over the course of the Denchenko trial and is valuable to kind of understanding exactly what the yeah. FBI did and didn't do as it pertained to the legitimacy of the Crossfire Hurricane investigation. Right. 
Well, uh, speaking of another uh, layered and partisan-coded and complicated <laughs> investigation, uh, Hunter Biden back in the news. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chuck, Chuck Grassley, one of the one of the uh, leading kind of o- oversight Senate Republicans or, or Republicans from either party, uh, was saying that uh, a whistleblower has turned over a co- what, copious amounts of evidence uh, of criminal wrongdoing uh, on the part of Hunter Biden. Uh, Hunter Biden has been under. Uh, criminal investigation for it feels like years now mm-hmm. at this point. Uh, a lot of people wondering what's what on earth is going on with that. Are we going to get some type of resolution? Why are we not getting the kind of uh, drip, drip, drip leaks that you get sometimes with these political, you know, with these uh, investigations of people who are in politics? Uh, and uh, I, I don't know. Like when are we gonna when are we getting an answer here? Yeah, this is one thing. And it says Hunter. If you're watching, you see it says Hunter at the bottom of the screen. But if you read Grassley's, he, he put out a press release yesterday in which he did say, as the tweet we had up from Jerry Dunleavy of the Washington Examiner, that whistleblowers have revealed the FBI possesses, possesses quote significant, impactful, and voluminous evidence with respect to potential criminal conduct by Hunter Biden related to China, and that includes info provided by Tony Bobulinski and to Ukraine, which tied to Burisma, but. If you read Grassley's press release, what he's really talking about is the fact that the FBI may be sitting on tons of evidence that implicates the president himself. And the Hunter Biden story is extremely relevant and um, concerning in a million different ways. Whether you're talking about CEFC, whether you're talking about Burisma, it's pretty much obvious the level of corruption. He's trading on his name. He's making tons of money off of these, uh, off of trading on his name and operating, let's say, with something like CEFC. That's the Chinese mm-hmm. energy conglomerate that he made uh, a lot of money off of. And at a time when you, you you wouldn't necessarily have wanted the son of the vice president or the son of the former vice president to be involved with a Chinese company, um, let alone a Chinese ener- energy conglomerate on the level that CEFC was, but the the idea that the FBI, according to a senior Republican senator, has voluminous evidence that might actually tie um, Hunter Biden to his father, that his father was profiting, that is the, the critical thing here. And you have people saying, whistleblowers saying, that the FBI has evidence they provided of this to this extent. We're getting into pretty uh, remarkable territory. And a a good question for you is, do you have historical precedent? Is there historical precedent? Uh, Has this happened before, basically? You mean for... The FBI sitting on evidence that might implicate, major evidence that might implicate the president in um, sort of like criminal corruption. Oh, yes. I think, uh, and actually there's a new Hoover uh, biography that uh, just came out, or it's coming out soon. I got it. I have a copy of it um, that I've started, it, it, which is a reminder that uh, Hoover Hoover sat on uh, Hoover sat on evidence around you know high level uh, misdeeds for you know pretty much every president. I was going to say. Yes. I, I was going to so say. Yeah, it, it would it would not be unprecedented for for that for certainly for that 
to happen. But um, it is getting to this era that we consider culturally to be a very dark one. Um, and, and that's why I, I assumed that there was some sort of Hoover precedent for this. And we look back on Hoover's tenure over the FBI, even though the, the building is named after him. Our culture sort still, of understands, yeah. has in the last couple of decades at least, come to understand the, the tenure of J. Edgar Hoover as a very dark one, as a very sort of un-American approach uh, to, I mean, the FBI, you could argue in general, is sort of predicated on uh, problematic grounds. Uh, but that that tenure is, is a, a very dark one. And this seems to be happening under everybody's noses. Um, one, one question might be, what would the criminal activity be? Because if you ever do corner Democrats on this particular question, they'll say, well, Joe Biden was out of office at that point. Mm-hmm. Like he was no longer vice president. Now he was vice president when, uh, when Hunter was cutting some of these deals. But during the time that, let's say, you, since Bobolinsky is the one that is being referenced here by Grassley, the Bobolinsky claims if you believe them, and I think he, he has presented a significant amount of evidence that suggests you should believe him, Right. Uh, that, that is definitely you know, kind of pre him running for president and post uh, vice president. But uh, if, if you missed this, but basically Bob Alinsky has texts and emails with Hunter Biden talking about meeting, uh, meeting your father. Right. And then there are text messages that say, hey, you know, I'm at the bar. I'm over here, mm-hmm. and hey, you know, and then and it's like, hey, it was awesome to meet your dad. Like, mm-hmm. like so, you, there are contemporaneous text messages that would have been, that would have had to have been concocted, like seamlessly, <laughs> like if you were trying to like retcon this event having that didn't happen. So, the FBI should be able to then figure out, well, where was Joe Biden at, at this time? Right. Now, if 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 he did meet with with Bobolinsky. Uh, it, it would be understandable that Hunter would want that to happen, like that, because Hunter's whole pitch is my last name is Biden. It's 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 only useful if your last name is Biden if you can also then deliver mm-hmm. uh, on those on those connections. And so to be able to have your father come and meet this guy at the hotel bar, wherever they wherever they said they met, there's another one where uh, we'll stick with Bob Alinsky, um That 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 now. They wouldn't talk about anything because that's not how that goes. Mm-hmm. Like you would, you know, Biden would show up, and and this is what Bobolinsky says. There are plenty of pictures of yeah. Joe Biden with Hunter Biden's clients. Right, and and this one there was no picture, but it, according to Bobolinsky, was just like, "Hey, take good care of my son." And my son says uh, that he trusts you, therefore I trust you. And like they, like they don't talk business and talk. The other problem for Biden, the big guy, as he as he likes to be, go by. Uh, <laughs> Is that he has he has said on the record that I have never discussed Hunter's business affairs with him ever. Mm-hmm. Hunter has said on the record to the New Yorker that they did at least once, where uh, Biden said to him, uh, "I with Burisma, I hope you know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. You better know what you're doing." Which you can under, you can see somebody saying that to Absolutely. if your son is Hunter, like, "Geez, Hunter, you better know what you're doing here," mm-hmm. and that doesn't necessarily implicate him. Biden in the business deal, but it means they did talk about which is a lie. The business deal, which means which means his claim that they never talked about it, is at least uh, discredited by that moment, and then then it puts the Bobolinsky meeting in a different perspective. So I'm very curious what information the FBI has has gathered uh, to kind of because you know if if Bobolinsky is able to it you know if he provided all of the same information that he's made public, then you know the FBI has tools to try to verify, was he where he say, said he was? Was Hunter where he said he was? Mm-hmm. Um, 
be nice if we would learn some of this. Well, and again, this It'd be is nice for like, Democrats if they learn it before the presidential election. Because, yes, uh, if the, the House flips to Republicans, their focus on oversight is absolutely going to drag a lot of this into the public domain. I mean, there, there's just, it's going to be a huge tug of war um, on information pertaining to Joe and Hunter Biden. So there's no question about that. Um, and the, the question of criminality is a, a good one. The question of propriety is a good one. I think the the bottom line, from my perspective, is that I, I, would, I would love to know how the president of the United States funded his lifestyle uh, from the years that he was after after leaving uh, the Obama administration until being elected, because it seems very likely to me that a chunk of that was funded on Hunter sort of trading on the Biden name and paying for different things. And, and what that means for Joe Biden's actual governance, um, you know, maybe that's the last question I'll toss to you. I'm curious what you think. Is there any reason to believe that Joe Biden's, say, foreign policy is compromised when it comes to China, compromised when it comes to Ukraine? I, I think it's an open question. I don't, I don't know that there's significant evidence he's treating the China question from this very broad 30,000-foot position differently because of those relationships and because of the way that his son made money. Um, but it does show, I think, at the very least, corruption. Well, we know a significant amount of his revenue did come from what, what I'd call legal corruption. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the typical legal corruption that we have in our system, which is just massive book deals <laughs> that come from these corporate conglomerates that own these book companies. So there was that. Uh, there was- Which he routed through an S-corp, right? Routed through an S-corp. Yeah. Then there was a eight or $900,000 gig uh, at the University of Pennsylvania, where uh, mostly it seems like a no-show gig, mm-hmm. uh, which he then followed uh, by naming the- uh, University of Pennsylvania chancellor or president or whatever it was as like the ambassador to Germany. And so a reporter had flagged it as one of the few, like, because amb- ambassadorships are just have, under every president, just rotten to the core. Yeah. Like you just, just, they just go to big donors. Right. And it's the one place where that's a little less awful because you want an ambassador to be some like, or if you're an empire, you want an ambassador to be like, a representative of that empire and having a some type of super rich person who's a mm-hmm. social being. Yeah. It's like, they'll do the empire's work. And then uh, they're like, this is one of the few. This We, we got somebody that runs a university. So th- thank you, Biden, for doing something that wasn't like on its face corrupt when it came to ambassadorships. And it's like, oh, actually, uh, a person, she paid him $900,000 mm-hmm. personally, directly to him. Mm-hmm. So it's like, all right, never mind. That one's, that one was not, not corrupt either. So there's, we, so we already know that that, and there wasn't a lot of time, yeah. 2017, 18, and then by, by, by like 18, he's back in the race. Yeah. Yes, he is. So. You know, the reason that I, I think these, these stories between Bannon and Denchenko and Hunter Biden, I, I think it's very true that the media, uh, obviously with all of the bias and activism at play, also uh, refrains from going super deep on them because they're just difficult to dive into. It's difficult to give appropriate treatment to them in shorter segments. Um, oh, but, but to answer your question, yeah. I don't think that his Ukraine policy is influenced at all by no, it. Because I, I think no. this, this is structural. Like, you, th- this is what any non-MAGA um, kind of president 
would be doing, Although like, I, Democrat or Republican. I do think there's a question as to whether when he was vice president and Hunter Biden was on the Burisma board, that he had people chirping in his ear sure. from yeah. his son's sort of orbit and had that sort of disproportionately loud uh, volume up on them as opposed to uh, other Yeah, people. that's why this stuff shouldn't happen. Exactly, yeah. because you can't quantify it, you can't know it, you can't disentangle it. But the reason I think these stories were important to cover is because uh, it does, from my perspective, really show the way in which powerful interests are being weaponized, not just by Republicans, not just by Democrats, um, but by the political establishment sort of in general. I mean, if you look at the House January 6th committee that subpoenaed Steve Bannon, you have Adam Kinzinger and you have Liz Cheney uh, leading the charge, shattering congressional precedent in terms of what we seek um, mm-hmm. on select committees like that. And, and the, the result is probably, sadly, going to be something like more uh, unrest along the lines of what happened on January 6th, along the lines of what's happened around the country in different ways um, over the course of the last few years, because um, this stuff is really happening. I mean, it, it is really happening under our noses, the media's lack of curiosity, um, whether it is Bannon, Denchenko, Hunter Biden is a truly, I think, sorry state of affairs. Now, on that point, Ryan, speaking of sorry state of affairs, speaking of January, January 6th, 6, bring yeah. it on. What's your point I today? Got a, I got a point to make on that. So <laughs> going back to the book I talked about actually uh, a couple weeks ago. So in, in the lead up to the impeachment trial of former President Donald Trump, Congressman Jamie Raskin pushed the White House to allow impeachment managers to call witnesses. In particular, he wanted to call Secret Service agents to testify about Trump's actions on January 6th and the lead up, as well as call Pentagon officials to testify about the long delay in getting the Capitol cleared. That's according to the new book, Unchecked, the untold story behind Congress's botched impeachments of Donald Trump. Now, I got an early copy of the book, which comes out today, and I talked about another scoop in it a few weeks ago about how Nancy Pelosi rejected attempts by rank-and-file Democrats to impeach Trump on the night of the insurrection. This new bit of news is particularly interesting given that the clinching argument made by the January 6th committee related directly to Trump's attempt to practically carjack the beast. Here was their blockbuster testimony from a former White House aide. I'm the effing president. Take me up to the Capitol now which Bobby responded, sir, we have to go back to the West Wing. The president reached up towards the front of the vehicle to grab at the steering wheel. Mr. Engel grabbed his arm, said, sir, you need to take your hand off the steering wheel. We're going back to the West Wing. We're not going to the Capitol. After the testimony, Trump denied it happened. Here was his little stand-up bit making his case. You know what else I don't want to talk about? How about that phony story? I'm sitting in the back of the beast. (laughs) I wasn't sure if I should be honored because I felt very strong. (laughs) And I had these two big, strong Secret Service guys. If one guy could lift 350 pounds, no problem. And I said, take me to the Capitol. No, sir, can't do it. So I grabbed the steering wheel. The comedy and he rebuffed me, she said. He rebuffed. Interesting word. He rebuffed me. Yeah, like this. He rebuffed me. So my hands fell around another powerful guy. Strong as hell. I know these people. These are very strong people. It's just not my deal. 
And I started to choke him. I felt, you know, when, so when the story came out, <laughs> some people said, I never knew you were that strong physically. <laughs> and then I, they said I started throwing food all over the White House. No, I have too much respect for the White House. But that somebody could sort of believe, you know, that you could. But to think that I'm going to be jumping into the seat Grabbing a wheel, being rebuffed, grabbing this big, powerful guy, his neck is like this, and grabbing, I'm going to take him. Oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy, what we have to put. And, and guess what? The Secret Service put out an announcement, which they never do, put out an announcement that it never happened, which everyone knew anyway. So now Tony Ornato, the Secret Service official that Hutchinson cited as her source for the story, later denied it. But he has denied other things that multiple witnesses uh, say happened. Here's a, a tweet from Alyssa Farrar, our old colleague back, mm-hmm. at, back at Rising. Uh, this is just one of many examples of things that he's been caught in. And uh, Carol Lenning, actually, uh, who won a Pulitzer for her reporting on the Secret Service and is as well sourced there as anybody, put her here next, said that the agents denied that Trump physically attacked them, as Trump did, uh, but confirmed that he was furious and demanded to be taken to the Capitol. So the point is, this is the perfect kind of thing that could have been sorted out by some witness testimony, but the incoming Biden administration refused it. The book also reports that Biden blocked investigators from calling Justice Department officials to look into rumors of an FBI memo that had warned of a looming threat to the Capitol. Rachel Bade and Karen DeMargin write, quote, the document would have helped Raskin's team make the case that the president knew of the threat of violence before he urged his supporters to march on the Capitol. But justice officials told him that disclosing it would complicate upcoming prosecutions of rioters. They ran into a similar predicament with the Pentagon, unquote. So in short, in order to strengthen their case against the regular people who mobbed the Capitol, they purposely weakened their case against Trump. There couldn't be a more perfect encapsulation of the Democratic response than that. Now, Emily Raskin in the book seems to think that it's too much. All right, what, what about you? What point you want to make? Well, it didn't get a lot of attention, but Northwestern University dropped its state of local news report earlier this month, and that reported that America lost over 360 newspapers from late 2019 until last May. That's an average of about two every week. Since 2005, we've lost 2,500 papers overall. This is a market failure. People want affordable information on their communities, but rapid technological changes made that almost impossible for businesses to supply at sustainable levels. Now, as Northwestern notes, digital media isn't replacing those papers, and while some philanthropies have sought to fill the gaps, those efforts are leaving behind the same subset of communities. In the words of the report, economically struggling, traditionally underserved communities that need local journalism the most are the very places where it is most difficult to sustain either print or digital news organizations. The result is a glaring disparity that haunts our politics and our culture more than people realize. In less affluent communities, powerful interests face much less scrutiny, allowing them to more easily exploit people without fear of oversight from the free press. The sanctimony about democracy dying in darkness is fun to laugh at from self-serious celebrity journalists, but the problem 
is very real outside of our big cities. These blind spots are dangerous and they fuel our political discord. Take recent explosions in national coverage of local school districts curricula. Sometimes the way these stories are first reported is actually in national media outlets that have little connection to the place in question. They don't have a reporter at all of the school board meetings who knows the superintendents or the union leaders or the parents. They don't have a direct stake in the school either. When schools went virtual during the pandemic, parents seemed to be learning for the first time things local outlets might have actually caught had they been equipped with the resources to more closely report on what was happening. Social media platforms also vault local stories to viral reach, ripping them from their context and thrusting unwitting people into international controversies. So that's a problem too, but it's one for another show. Now, Northwestern's report notes, quote, the number of journalists declined in lockstep with revenue decreases by almost 60% from 75,000 in 2005 to 31,400 in 2021. They report, quote, 4 million people live in the more than 200 counties that have no local newspaper. More than half the counties, 1,630, have only one newspaper paper, usually a weekly one with a small reporting staff. Only 70 of these counties have a local digital alternative and two thirds of the nation's counties, 2000, have no daily paper. Fewer than a hundred of these counties have a digital substitute. Fewer than a hundred. By necessity, the report says, the main source of local breaking news for residents in many counties without a daily paper becomes social media or television stations, often located in cities miles away or even in another state. Northwestern points out that single newspaper counties in the West can encompass several thousand square miles. So while they may have fewer people and thus fewer consumers, they have an immense amount of literal ground to cover, which also makes it more difficult for consolidated regional outlets to be sufficiently thorough. Worse yet, the national and regional chains that snap up dying local papers, quote, often replace publishers and editors at local papers with regional publishers and editors, and then merge the small weeklies with other weeklies in the area or with a larger off, a larger daily that is often in another county altogether. That's according to Northwestern. This means people concentrated in big cities are covering communities with vastly different cultural and political characteristics. Because those differences are often rooted in class differences, again, we see how economically disenfranchised communities get screwed in this arrangement. They either get no coverage or worse coverage, and both of those categories are great for the power brokers who can more easily take advantage of people, their governments, and their land. It's not great for people in more affluent areas either because they struggle to understand and empathize with their fellow Americans because they have less accurate information about what happens outside of big cities. Now, when a coastal hedge fund disappears a rural paper mill, do you think they'd rather do it with or without coverage from a strong local news outlet? When a teacher tries to implement debunked curricula into their lesson plans, debunked or controversial, do you think they'd rather defend it knowing a local reporter will be at the meeting filing a story that parents around the district will read? A lot of people, especially conservatives like me, probably haven't been too sorry to see their local papers fold. Journalists tend to be liberal and even in smaller communities, that bias is often clear and often skews further left than the community they cover. 
but biased news is still news. And we should prefer communities to at least know what's happening around them than allowing their government and business and faith leaders to operate in relative darkness. Plus, local journalists actually live and work in the same communities, meaning they're familiar with their subjects and actually accountable to the people around them, like other parents or their neighbors or even friends at the gym. You can't execute hit and runs as a local reporter quite like a national one doing shoddy work than just moving right along. Local TV affiliates do what they can, and Instagram and Twitter profiles try to disseminate information, but that doesn't really instill fear in the hearts of powerful people quite like traditional reporting. Those same people also need safe places to air their grievances and whistleblow on things that their constituents care about, and places to share in communal successes, too. But they absolutely need to be afraid, because without fear of oversight, they will abuse their power. Once again, the people who bear the brunt of that abuse will be those people who already lack resources. We're going to be joined now uh, by Sadara Siddiqui. She uh, is a PhD in American Studies uh, from uh, University of Tehran. Uh, she joins us from uh, Esfahan, which is uh, one of the one of the largest cities in Iran. Uh, she's a a teacher and also a uh, podcaster. Her YouTube, her podcast, and YouTube. Uh, channel our host. Uh, she's the host of Twice Told Tales. That's on uh, YouTube and it's also a podcast. Uh, Sitara, you know, th- uh, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. That's my pleasure. And so, Sitara, can you first set the set the background here? What what is what what is your own uh, what is your own take on the the policy that is being uh, protested against uh, right now across? Iran, and what, what has your involvement been in kind of pushing, pushing back against the law that is, that is currently at, at, at the center of, this, of these protests? Well, as a woman and um, who uh, is concerned about women's rights in my country, uh, I have been a part of uh, the campaign, online campaign, which was launched well before the tragic death of Masa Amini in police custody. Uh, and uh, I used hashtags to um, join um, other women and men um, to protest the way the mandatory hijab is uh, enforced and to protest the, the uh, quote-unquote morality police, which in Persian we say, uh, we call it a guidance patrol, by the way. Um, but as as a woman who's been active uh, in the society, uh, I have always been um, concerned about how this struggle of women's rights inside Iran is also represented outside, because we don't want anyone to make our struggles within the society, within Iran, more difficult. So the, when the protests started, uh, people wanted to make a statement uh, to the state and say that the uh, morality police has to be abandoned. But soon the protests were going a totally different direction. Uh, and uh, in my city, for example, they were not uh, as huge as the other protests that I have seen over the years. 
Oh, that's really interesting. Um, and, and on that point, as you sort of question the <clears throat> or, or work to uh, on the legitimacy of the representation of what's happening outside of Iran and maybe Western media, what is it, do you think, or, or are there things that the American media is getting, Western media maybe in general, is getting wrong about what's happening right now? Are there narratives or themes or storylines you see coming out of Western media that are most egregious? Well, I mean, a lot. It's it's not the first time that the Western media has tried to control the narrative and uh, portray Iran uh, as very different from the realities on the ground. But this time it has been uh, really unprecedented and um, uh, probably uh, the people in America and elsewhere in the world have been hearing about uh, the news in Iran 24-7 uh, <laughs> as if something really huge has been happening. But when you come inside uh, Iran, I have been uh, talking to tourists just a few days ago when I was uh, on a picnic with my family and they did not even uh, notice anything in Iran, in Tehran or in Esfahan and in other cities that they had uh, been visiting. And the tourists are even still coming to the country even though they're seeing a decline in the number of people from outside side who want to uh, visit Iran because of obviously what they hear. Uh, so this coordinated um, manipulation campaign is uh, cannot be denied. And, um, you know, if, as an Iranian, uh, as one of the members of the uh, Iranian nation, I have seen um, that Western countries, in, especially the U.S., has launched a, um, different um propaganda campaigns against my nation. They have um, tried to demonize the Iranian nation to portray Iranian women as submissive and needing help from outside while Iranian women are very powerful. They don't need help from outside. 57% of Iranian university students are women. 40, above 44% of the university graduates are women. Women are active in different sectors and they run NGOs, uh, they're entrepreneurs, they're doctors, uh, university teachers, etc. And they know how to control everything. But what we are seeing from the Western media is troll farms, basically, trying to you know, portray what is happening inside Iran as almost a revolution, which is, uh, it's really funny for us who are living in Iran, because uh, if we don't open our Twitter or our Instagram uh, or other social media, we don't see anything happening around us. But once we get on social media, we feel that something very important is happening. I walk downtown, I go to work, I visit family and friends, and I don't see anything happening. I hear from friends that there have been protests here and there. Many of them have already died out. Uh, and people are still trying to um, trying to make a um, statement to the state and try to change the things that they don't agree with. But and overall, we, um, we do not want a regime change, uh, to be frank. Uh, we're happy with a lot of things that are ha happening here. At the same time, we're uh, protesting uh, and we're demanding more equal rights uh, and more um, civil rights. And this has nothing to do with anyone from outside. As Malcolm X uh, said in his famous the bulletin ba um, the bullet or ballot uh, speech, 
uh, our brothers and sisters, I know they have good intentions, but those from outside Iran better not even speak about it because they just make our struggle more difficult. We don't need help from outside. We know how to deal with the governments and pursue our goals. How, do, how does the unrest that you're seeing and the protests that you're seeing now compare to 20, 2019? And, and what, 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 were the, what were the different kind of goals and agendas of those two different protests? Or even 2009. Well, yes. I mean, in 2019, the protests started over the fuel prices going high. So it was mainly by the working class, but also a middle class that was... Uh, um, that was also hit by uh, the economic problems that we have. And by the way, it's important to know that, uh, I mean, alongside the mismanagement uh, uh, that we might have in Iran, it's also U.S. sanctions, the U.S. unilateral uh, coercive measures against Iran that are hitting uh, ordinary Iranian citizens. And uh, that's why we find everything that comes from the U.S. claiming to be uh, advocating for the rights of Iranian citizens as very, very hypocritical. We have not forgotten that um, the U.S. backed Saddam Hussein in its war. I was born during the war, by the way. And we have not forgotten that the U.S. backed Saddam Hussein's invasion of Iran and some uh, European countries uh, armed uh, Saddam with chemical weapons and we still have people who are suffering from them. We haven't forgotten that the U.S. Uh, downed our passenger plane uh, on the Persian Gulf. We haven't forgotten that the Bush administration, for example, um, armed and trained um, the MEK terrorist cult in Nevada uh, to assassinate our nuclear scientists. Uh, so, with, with, and the, the sanctions are still hurting um, ordinary citizens. So, with having seen all of that, we find anything that comes from the U.S. very hypocritical. The, uh, I think that makes a difference. Um, I mean, if anyone had doubts, uh, that the U.S. is pursuing its agenda, now it's, it has become more clear. Because in 2019, when the working class was protesting, and the protests were a lot larger than this year, we did not see as much coverage of the events uh, as we're seeing now. And, um, you know, CNN did this article on how the narrative is being taken over uh, online and how uh, so many of um, the accounts that have been using the hashtags regarding Nassamini's death have been actually fake accounts or accounts that have been uh, created only 10 days after, um, like up to 10 days after Nassamini's death. And, uh, I mean, it's surprising that the uh, Twitter account, Twitter is not even taking down those fake accounts. Um, and uh, you see celebrities with uh, millions of followers sharing fake videos. And even when they are told that this is a fake video, this is, for example, from a drama scene, they keep that on. And so it, it it's very different in the sense that um, people, Iranian people, and I think the world is gradually also understanding that they have been lied to about whatever is happening in Iran. And they have not, uh, and how many voices from inside Iran have people been hearing? I mean, you have, um, I'm, I'm glad that you gave me this platform so that I can, um, like, as, a, as one voice inside Iran, speak to the people of the world, but there are really not many 
um, platforms out there for Iranians to be able to speak and say that, yes, we're not a monolithic uh, society. Um, we have grievances with our governments. Well, we're, not, we're not looking for regime change. Um, and we're, we're, we're living a normal life. Speaking of that non-monolithic uh, appro- approach, can you talk a little bit about the what's going on in the Baluchi region or the or the Kurdish region? There, there were reports that you know more than sixty people were killed. I think in the Baluchi region, there's reports of all like some some clashes with protesters in Kurdish regions. What what's going on? It, how how did this begin as a a protest around uh, the morality police and evolve into these types of clashes and, and what 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 is what are the latest on those and I imagine you're not there but I assume you're getting reports from from out there yes because I when I lived in Tehran I was I had roommates from across the, the country and uh, I have had Kurdish friends you know and uh, we don't I mean the Kurdish ethnicity comes second to our Iranian nationality we don't really feel that someone is from a different ethnicity it's very different here we um, ethnicity is something that comes second to our nationality. And uh, like I, we have family members who marry into other ethnicities, and that's very normal in different cities. Uh, so, yeah, I have been talking to them, too. The thing is, there are a few uh, terrorist groups and separatist groups that have been uh, exploiting ethnicity to pursue their agendas. And they are usually as... Uh, uh, has been proved uh, several times, not only in Iran, but also in Turkey, in Iraq and Syria. They are uh, funded and backed by the U.S. and the U.K. and the Israeli regime um, because they are seeking uh, to destabilize the uh, Middle East and especially destabilize Iran because, you know, we have been a very um, a country with um, uh, which has been like as well-established, we don't have issues of uh, security or destabilization that much, but they are trying to create chaos inside the country. So when when there is unrest, when there are um, protests and riots, it's a great opportunity for those terrorist groups to pursue their own agenda. Um, when Masa Amini died, uh, his father made it clear to the public that this has nothing to do with his her Kurdish identity. It is um, uh, an issue of women's right for all Iranians, regardless of their ethnicity, and they don't want the ethnicity to be highlighted because it doesn't really matter. And that's the same for all Iranians from other ethnicities. In Baluchistan, we also had um, terrorist groups which are funded and backed by Saudi and Salafi um, ideology, and uh, they have always been very active. Unfortunately, they have killed a lot of police officers, not just this year, in, in previous years too, um, uh, because like they are at the border with Pakistan, and um, they cause uh, they seek to create chaos there. So, what happened in Baluchistan and what happened in uh, in Sanandaj, for example, was that we saw uh, activities from like um, random people shooting uh, and then the police had to get involved. And when something like that happens, unfortunately and sadly, we also see innocent people getting killed. But there are videos of what happens in, for example, Sistan, where uh, 
like people dressed as ordinary people uh, come and start shooting at protesters, like from among the protesters, and they start shooting at protesters. So, and and because of the all the lies and fake. Uh, uh, stories that have been going viral online, it becomes very difficult for people to understand who's exactly um, causing this uh, chaos in the country. And they want to step back and just uh, not to be involved in the protests anymore. And that's, I think, one reason that the protests have already died out. It's interesting because I remember back in 2000, and I think it was 2009, the Obama era, the, the idea was that Twitter was was fueling revolution and that it was going to topple authoritarian dictators. Well, and, and Sitar could talk about this. In 2019, they shut, shut the internet down for at least a week, like but, a full week. So, like, it's... There is power. No, of, in, cor- of yeah. course there's power, but there's so much power for fake information right. to go mm-hmm. viral, mm-hmm. too. And that's what exactly. that that is. So I think that is such a stark contrast with the way Twitter was being pitched back in the, the aughts. Um, and, and I wanted to ask, you know, obviously the his, the hostility between the United States and Iran is, is long and complicated and two sided. But if we separate the sort of ordinary citizens from the government, um, you know, there are a lot of regular Americans who want to know, you know, what can uh, the, what is the plight of women in Iran? You know, what, you cut out all of the Western uh, disinformation and and narrative. Um, What are activists in Iran, like yourself, um, what can your government, what should your government be doing better for women? Well, I think um, uh, we have improved a lot over the years, and that's because women uh, have been taking the lead uh, in uh, demanding reforms with, uh, for example, laws regarding women. And uh, it's been improving. So what we what we ask the government is just to speed up this process and allow for more and more women to get involved and, and to support them. Uh, women have, in Iran have, have been able to change um, a lot of laws uh, regarding women and have improved the situation for women. Uh, and that's why, as I said, like we are seeing uh, more women at uni- studying at universities the, uh, than men even. Um, and in, in some majors, it's even more than 70% of uh, the students are women. So this is what we have been doing. And we have to uh, educate our nation as well. I mean, it's it's not everything comes from the government. We have to also educate the grassroots. Uh, but what we want the government to do is to resist any foreign intervention and do not allow uh, our um, our struggle for civil rights and for more equal rights to be hijacked by forces outside. This is basically the main thing. And we want to, we want the government to focus on us. Um, and I know that when there is so much hostility uh, targeted towards Iran, it becomes very difficult for the, the government also to, I mean, they, they will have to be get busy at the borders. They will get busy at uh, a lot of other things. But still, we want them to focus on um, the issues inside and try to make it easier for women to pursue uh, their goals. Uh, some, somewhat off top. Off-topic question, but not totally. Iran has a pretty strict abortion ban, and I'm curious, uh, since I live in a country that's headed in that direction, what what has been the effect of that? Is there is there a significant black market uh, for for abortions? Is there is there an abortion rights? Is there kind of an underground abortion rights movement there? Where 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 are uh, you know where where is Iranian society and law on that question right now? 
Well, the uh, abortion in Iran is uh, not totally banned. Uh, if uh, abortion uh, is necessary for the mother's health, or if you get uh, permission from doctors, you can do it in the regular hospitals, and that's not very difficult. Um, so, and that's also one thing that women's rights have been working on, uh, because the majority of Iranians are Muslim, and they want the Islamic laws to be enforced. They have. Um, maybe some sort of uh, different ideas about how abortion has to be um, um, banned or not banned here. But based on Islamic law and based on the Iranian law, um, mother, the mother's health and uh, well-being comes first. And that's uh, what plays a pivotal role in whether a woman is allowed um to abort or not. Like uh, Christians, I mean, I'm sure the Christian community also uh, believes that um, at least as Christians, they should be able to practice what they believe in or the Jewish community. And here too, Muslims want to be uh, allowed to practice what they believe in. And I think it's very important to understand, uh, it's not about only abortion, it's with uh, a lot of other rules, for example, the head cover or the covering. It's very important to understand that not everyone in the world wants to uh, enforce um, the liberal um, Western notion of freedom or bodily autonomy. There are people who believe in their own uh, ideas, and that's about the majority of Iranians here. Um, it's interesting to know that there have been campaigns inside Iran um, because, you know, it has become very easy for women to just get a permission from their doctors to abort. And there have been campaigns in, inside Iran asking doctors to make it more difficult because the patients have to be, um, uh, you know, well informed about the consequences and about everything that uh, would happen uh, to them. And they are asking for more education for women so that uh, if they make a decision, it's not only coming from the doctors, it's also something that they really want to do. Mm. What well, I'm just curious, if, if you could get a, or, or may, and maybe you have some polling that you, that you trust, what what are what is the general attitude toward the the, the particular law um, around re required uh, hijab in in public? Where where do you think the the, the Iranian public would uh, come down on that? And if it were repealed, what what what's your guess on what the effect of that would be? How many women would would voluntarily continue uh, wearing mm -hmm. it in public? That's a good question because it's another one of those things the Western media latches onto as a, a sort of straight and narrow question of within mm -hmm. the framing of, of Western freedom. Exactly. And uh, the way they portray women inside Iran wearing hijab is that they have been asked by men to do it and women are submissive or anything, but women here are very powerful and they know how to, as I said, achieve their goals. But um, I mean, I don't have, there are a few statistics, but uh, because that's a topic that has not, uh, you know, it has not been the main concern for Iranian women. Iranian women have uh, do not have the mandatory hijab, whether for it to be um, uh, enforced or not, has not been the first priority for Iranian women. Iranian women want uh, changes with uh, other uh, things that happen to us. Um, for example, more equal rights in uh, job opportunities, uh, in marriage uh, uh, rights, etc. So, um, 
I understand that the West might have difficulty understanding that uh, a lot of people here do not really have an issue with uh, covering their heads. And they understand the culture here because I have friends who do not like to wear um, the head scarf, but they have been practicing it because they know that it's not only the government that, I mean, the government is, uh, has been enforcing it because a majority wanted it to be enforced. But now this is changing. I mean, with the, uh, with the demographics changing and with the society going on, these are changing. And I cannot give you, um, I mean, the statistics that I have heard uh, from uh, different um, uh, independent bodies uh, inside Iran is uh, ranges from, uh, from one person, I mean, from different percentages. So it's not like a very exact. But I could tell you that there is still a majority uh, that would practice hijab, even if it was not mandatory. And that's coming from uh, even the, the Generation Z, as you call it here. <laughs> I've uh, talked to students um, at universities. I've talked to high school students. Even those who, for example, uh, practice it, wearing it like quite relaxed and um, different from what the, uh, like the government demands. Um, even them, they say that if, if it was voluntary, voluntary and I could make a choice, I would still wear it, even if it's like uh, just covering half of my hair and not fully. But I would still wear it because the majority of Iranians are still religious. We have strong family uh, families here we uh, and family bonds here. Families are still functioning to a large extent, and that's very different from the West. Uh, and families um, uh, cherish and celebrate uh, Islamic values. So, um, yes, I think there are the, there is a larger yeah. number now compared to, for example, 10 years ago or 20 years ago that do not want to practice it anymore. And I think they should, like people uh, should be allowed to choose like uh, as right. it functions in all democracies. That seems like such a reasonable position. If you want to wear it, wear it. If you don't want to wear it, don't wear it. Do you, do you why won't the, is there something symbolic about this particular law that is, that the government is clinging to? Why won't the government move to that more reasonable position, which says, hey, you want to you want to wear it? That's wonderful. If you don't want to wear it, that's also fine. Well, how how do you how does the government, the U.S. government, decide on whether to uh, legalize abortion or not? It's basically we, we have, we have based nine, on the We have nine unelected uh, kind of religious leaders appointed by uh, our elected. Uh, we, we have a Supreme Council of religious leaders that we call the Supreme oh Court, mm -hmm. uh, and they have final say over our over our laws. I understand okay. that you have a similar system over there. Okay, yes, and but we also have the parliament, and the parliament is the way through the channel through which uh, we can change a law, I mean, demand uh, the, the, from the governments to start changing the law. So if, uh, I mean, because you, you also need to understand that there is a large proportion of the population who is not against a mandatory uh, hijab law. So if you want to satisfy and if, if you want to uh, convince public opinion, it has to be that people should be allowed. It, it, it is a long process. You have to start educating people and, um, you know, working on that. Because I'm sure that if Iran stopped uh, enforcing the hijab law, there would also be a large proportion who would take to the streets and say that this is disrespectful to, to their Islamic values. So the country has to take all these 
uh, groups of uh, people into account. But apart from that, it's also that hijab is also a symbol of fighting and resisting imperialist power. Not now, but you know, even during the um, Shah, the Pahlavi era or the Qajar era, when uh, hijab was not mandatory, most people were practicing it. And it was not, um, at some point even, because during the first path of Isha, it was banned, it became even more of a symbol of resistance because people uh, were feeling that there is an attack on their values and they wanted to uh, resist that. So I think the reason, I mean, I hope that the government will show more uh, uh, flexibility towards changing it and um, so that more people, I mean, we have a more inclusive, uh, uh, you know, uh, consensus on, uh, on w- what to do here. But I think that that's also something that the people should decide. The government alone cannot make a decision on it. We have yeah. to convince the public opinion. Yeah, I was, I was being a little bit glib earlier because there, there, there is still a link to there's some link to public opinion. So, for, for instance, when our Supreme Court finally legalized marriage equality, it, it did so not out of thin air, but after a serious kind of cultural movement pushing to, pushing to allow for same-sex marriage. And so it wasn't as if they just kind of came up with it on their own. And exactly. uh, there was a, a significant movement to, to ban, you know, to curtail abortion rights as well that, that culminated in... Uh, Roe v. Wade being overturned, so it's not—it's not like that it's completely disconnected from public opinion. It's just not as easy as uh, public preferences becoming law, kind of overnight. Yeah, and so it can be a long process. Exactly. And, yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us and uh, sharing your perspective. Uh, we really appreciate it. No problem. My pleasure. All right. Well, that wraps up today's show. We were really packed. We kind of took a tour of the whole world, basically, and American politics as well. Really interesting interview and just a, an interesting yeah. guest. Yeah, and I don't. I certainly. Yeah, it, it's it's nice to hear a different perspective, yes. Yes. Uh, whether or not you agree with it or not. Like we need to hear we need to hear all all bunch of different perspectives from both inside and outside. That's the thing, right, and this conversation about the concept of freedom in the West, right, because Western media is so dominant, especially in sort of big business mass media, that I think our concept of freedom is the most just definition of it. It is the correct, proper— And um, Sitara seemed to agree with it also. And and though the sort of—the perspective, though, of what other people see as as freedom is, I I think, one that the Western media doesn't like to platform and doesn't like to have these uncomfortable conversations because they're difficult and— um, complicated, and they don't sort of fit neatly into the package of you know, th- th- that you want to sort of send out to uh, people's living rooms and wherever for early morning television. Um, but they're really important, and at least to have that kind of cross pollination, have that conversation. Um, it- it's such a loss. You, our media could have conversations like that every day if they yeah. wanted to. And there's also a running theme from yesterday where we had Ambassador Dan Foote uh, talking about the unrest in Haiti. Mm-hmm. And he was, and, and we were talking about how if if there are protests in Cuba, Western, Western media, in particular U.S. media, is going to is going to spend its focus twenty four seven looking at the protests in Cuba. Uh, Haiti blows up; uh, nobody cares about Haiti. In Iran, in twenty nineteen, they're protesting uh, over you know uh, fuel prices, which are you know exacerbated by uh, American sanctions. They shut the internet down for an entire week. 
they killed hundreds of people in those 2019 protests, barely a peep, well, you know. barely registered in U.S. media. But then a protest, this, pro- this protest is uh, getting, you know, just relentless coverage where, and if you, t- if you take Satara's word for it in Esfahan, you walk out in Esfahan and you can't even tell that anything's going on. That doesn't, it doesn't mean that there isn't, isn't a, a passionate upswell of exactly. uh, and, a, and a surge in opposition to, to this headscarf law. But we, but we also need to take it in, uh, in proper context because you don't want viewers then to be like totally shocked that the regime doesn't fall. Yeah. And that a week later, you're like, wait a minute, what happened to those protests that we were talking about all the time? Well, yeah. And then, and then you further lose trust in, in your media sources because they're telling you that this regime is on the brink of collapse when, in fact, it isn't. Well, and the money that the American public works really hard to make is on the line as well because our tax money is on the line in, in negotiations over an Iran deal literally right now. Um, and, and so it's, it's important to the public to have an accurate sort of rendering of what's happening inside the borders of a country that uh, could be getting plenty of our money or could be uh, on the brunt of, of losing our money or, or our spending, period, in any different way. So it's frustrating. I mean, our, our major media could be having these conversations every day. They won't. Right. Um, and, so. and, she, and she's also right that there are a lot there, there are there is foreign influence in the in those particular regions that she talked about but it also it it absolutely doesn't justify you know security forces cracking down and killing dozens of dozens of people yeah so all all of those different things can be true yeah absolutely well we appreciate you joining here on joining us here on the show crystal and saga will be back this week we'll be back on friday um and it's it's been a pleasure and in general we just appreciate the viewers so much for allowing us for making it possible for us to have conversations like this one so we hope everybody has a great tuesday and we'll see you soon see you then infinity presents a new chapter in luxury The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. You don't put those inside of you, do you? This is a show about women. I mean, you do? Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly-veiled aspirational nightmare. It's not hosted, not narrated. We're just dropping into a woman's world. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. Looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. (laughs) Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.